What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use all day, every day. This rapid evolution and advancement in the technologies and enabling systems to get us to where we need to go is very promising, but I think it needs to be turbocharged. Devin Sweezy leads policy for Google's 24-7 carbon-free energy program. Later in the show, Devin will talk about how Google is turbocharging decarbonization. That includes a compact with companies, organizations, and governments to support 24-7 carbon-free energy everywhere around the world. For more information on Google's zero-carbon goals, go to 24-7cfe.com. When have you failed? Oh, many times. Uh, you're not going to tell them the story about the mic with this interview? Um, <laughs> you you uh, can tell the story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, well, everyone should know that whenever you failed is, you, you know, I mean, do you mean in the last 24 hours? Um, <laughs> uh, I was supposed to bring this fancy mic to uh, this interview and I uh, totally failed to do that. So um, we got it worked out. Yeah, we got it worked out. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero carbon future a reality. In 2020, solar was the leading source of new power plant capacity in the United States, representing nearly half of all new generating capacity and blowing fossil fuel additions out of the water. Across the world, 70,000 solar panels are installed every hour. The United States recently surpassed 100 gigawatts of installed solar capacity, enough to power nearly 20 million homes. But to decarbonize the power grid by 2035 and meet growing demand, the Department of Energy estimates that we'll need 1,000 gigawatts of solar capacity, providing 40% of the nation's electricity in 2035. That means on average, we'll need to install solar at quadruple the rate we did in 2020. We can achieve that growth without creative new ways to install solar in as many places as possible, including our rooftops. That's where our guest, Samuel Adeyemo, comes in. Aurora Solar is building the digital infrastructure of the solar industry. What we do is make software that solar professionals use to design and sell solar installations. Sam is the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Aurora Solar. Aurora is tackling one of the biggest problems in the rooftop solar industry, soft costs. The cost of solar panels has fallen 99% since 1980, but the cost of everything else involved in installing those panels, the paperwork, the design, the sales process, is now higher than the hardware itself. Aurora makes software designed to tackle all of those challenges together. If you look at the world before Aurora, Many times before actually fulfilling a solar installation, calculating how many solar panels will fit on the property, calculating or forecasting how much energy they'll produce, and forecasting how much money it would save the customer, would be manual, it would be tedious, and you'd actually have to travel to the site to do that. And that added a tremendous amount of cost to the system. And those costs get passed on to the end customer. The higher they are, the harder it is to get solar on more rooftops. And by making solar more affordable, our mission as a company is to create a future of solar energy for all. And a key component of that is making solar more affordable, which is what our software does. 
Sam was born in Nairobi, Kenya, the son of a professor and a teacher. He went on to study economics at the University of Chicago, then built his early career at J.P. Morgan, where he started as an analyst and worked his way up to VP in the bank's chief investment office. He liked his role at J.P. Morgan, but after seven years, something nagged him. What I always wanted to do was make a bigger impact, to do something that was more beneficial for society, something that I thought that uh, I would be proud of, not only the end of their career, but even, even beyond for a long time. And I didn't know exactly what that was. In 2011, Sam's father passed away. It caused him to re-examine his life and pushed him to quit his job, enter graduate school at Stanford, and explore where he could use his skills for a higher calling. So grad school was a good opportunity to reset, take a break from, you know, working day in, day out, meet a lot of interesting people, learn a lot. And uh, I think ultimately it worked because it gave me the time, the freedom, and uh, the knowledge to be able to co-found Aurora. The seed for Aurora Solar was planted the first week of grad school. Sam hosted a party in his dorm, and a guy named Christopher Hopper came by. We just started talking, and I learned a little bit about his background and what he was doing. And at the time, he had done a lot of work in emerging markets. He had founded a charity that installed solar for people who didn't have access to energy otherwise. 2011 was a major turning point for the solar industry. Hardware costs were coming down, countries were investing billions in manufacturing, and Sam and Chris started chatting about how solar might scale. And could this potentially be a business opportunity that would have all of these external benefits? And the answer that we developed over, at this point, 10 years was yes, it could be. In the decades since, Aurora has raised $321 million to help digitize the solar design and installation process. But the model for Aurora didn't materialize right there at that dorm room party. It took a really difficult experience installing a solar system in Kenya for Sam and Chris to find the right idea. We talked with Sam about turning that challenging experience into a solar company now valued at $2 billion. Well, soon thereafter, we spent a lot of nights and weekends while we're in school just trying to figure out, would it be possible to install what ultimately ended up being a commercial solar installation in a place halfway across the world? I was born in Kenya before coming to the States. So, you know, we thought, well, why don't we see if we could explore this concept in a place like Kenya? So we handed out a bunch, we got people to hand out a bunch of flyers to a series of different sites. And the flyers had a questionnaire which essentially asked, would you like better quality, lower cost electricity? And so those were the first steps. And then after that, we went through the process of actually designing a solar installation for a couple of sites, figuring out how we could raise a loan to pay for the equipment. And, you know, our summer internship between our first and second year of grad school was actually installing the system. What did you learn from that experience of installing this project in Kenya? And am I correct? It was in it was on a school. Is that right? Yeah, ultimately, it was on a school. I'll say this. When we started out, we didn't think it would be six to nine months of work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How long did you think it would be? Oh, I mean, I thought that, yeah, we'll have a couple of meetings. We'll come up with a design. We'll find someone maybe like a month or two. Um <laughs> Anyone who's installed solar or worked in an organization that installs solar would find that it is a lot more complicated and a lot more involved. 
In our case, it was exaggerated by several things. First of all, we didn't fully know what we were doing. None of us had done this in a professional capacity. Number two, it was halfway across the world. Number three, we didn't have any real money to do this. And then number four, it was a complex system. It ended up being a 50KW installation with uh, a big battery bank for some of the energy geeks out there. It was 3,500 amp hours at 48 volts, which mm. is, you know, like two big like Tesla cars, for example, like that size of battery. You know, what we learned is the complexity involved in actually designing and selling solar. What we learned is how little factors such as where exactly you choose to site the system, understanding what the payment plans would be for a customer, forecasting, you know, how much energy the system will produce, how all of these are intricately involved. What was the installation process like? And then what was the result of this system? Like what what impact did it have for the school that you installed the system on? So the installation and process involved flying down there, right? Getting our hard hats on, finding out all the initial assumptions that we had made. Well, not all, but a lot of the initial assumptions we had made ended up being things that when we saw the on-the-ground reality were not completely true. So an example is we thought that it was going to be a ground mount system and uh, we ended up having to change it relatively last minute to a rooftop system, which is a, a huge change, but we managed to pull it off. So but ultimately, the actual installation process only took a couple of weeks, and it was in a school in Kenya, and it paled in comparison to the six to nine months that we had spent actually designing the system, sending out questionnaires to various potential off-takers and saying, hey, would you be interested in a system that provided lower-cost electricity with better quality? So that actual process was a lot easier than the design of the system. But ultimately, by this point, between when we first met and when we actually installed the system, almost a full year had passed. And we were left with a lot of cuts and bruises. Quite frankly, while we were excited about solar, we were a little bit jaded about everything that was involved in actually getting it installed. What kept us going was the second part of your question is, what was the impact on the school? And the impact was just phenomenal. They had a significant reduction in their energy bills. They had better quality electricity. In the past, they would use combinations of diesel generators, electricity from the grid, all sorts of different factors. And what this allowed them to do was make solar their primary source of energy. And we know the benefits of solar. It's cleaner. It's greener. In emerging markets where you have battery backup or places where they don't have access to good electricity, it's actually more reliable. And given the arrangement we made, it was ultimately a lot cheaper than what they were doing otherwise. So uh, the impact on the school was phenomenal. What was it like for you doing, an, doing the installation in a place like Kenya, given that you were born there? No, it was interesting for me. I mean, the biggest factor for me was just doing the installation, right? Like I had come from seven plus years of being on a desk every day you know, wearing maybe not a full suit and tie, but certainly like, you know, dressing business casual and having very different conversations about the markets. So being out there, getting a hard hat, trying to figure out how to scramble onto this uh, roof, you know, figuring out like what sort of ladders we should get, figuring out like what all the safety equipment should be. And I'm pretty sure at the time we violated a few of them. That was just a completely <laughs> different experience 
the Kenya factor was also great because, you know, when you can bring someone or a, a group of folks like something that really transforms their lives and, you know, improves it for the better, that's always like fulfilling. So those were the two overwhelming emotions. And so coming back, given how hard it was, did you have the sense that now I want to start a solar company or were you sworn off solar after that? Obviously you weren't because you co-founded Aurora Solar, but what was the process for making that decision given the complexities that you had just spent a year of your life working on? I think that the overwhelming sentiment coming back was that this was a cool, fun project. This would be absolutely terrible and difficult to do full-time on an ongoing basis. We didn't have the objective to make money on this, which is great, uh, because if we had, we would have absolutely failed on that. Learning that it takes, at least it took us six to nine months to come up with a solar installation that would work for this particular client, given the tools at our disposal, we could never replicate this easily. Uh, it wouldn't be a scalable process. Another challenge that we faced was being able, like the impact of this one installation was great, but how would we find the next 10, 50, 100, 1,000 people, no matter where they were in the world, was one that we just didn't know how to solve. So the overwhelming sentiment was this was a fun, interesting project, but ultimately this isn't something that we thought we could do or scale longer term. And then how did that sentiment become the idea to actually start Aurora Solar? You know, interestingly, it's these small things that really spark a change in your thinking and your mindset. And for us, um, what happened was in Kenya, there was some problem with the grid one day and there was an outage that took down half the grid. So it was a really big deal. And everyone, almost everyone was affected by this, except for the school. The school was able to operate like all day. It was a boarding school and it also had a farm associated with it. So they were able to run their equipment and at night, you know, they had access to full electricity. And pun non intended, that's when the light bulb really struck and they were extremely appreciative and they wrote us letting us know about how well the system had worked and in addition to bill savings, they really saw the benefits of, you know, having consistent, reliable electricity. And they were getting a lot of people who were reaching out to them saying, hey, we've seen what you've done. Well, who did this for you? We would be interested in getting something similar. So we started receiving a lot of requests to, could you design a system for us? Could you generate this type of installation, et cetera, et cetera? And at the time we were back in school and we'd sort of sworn off, you know, launching a business in solar. At a point, we just got so many of these requests, we said, well, you know what, let's give it another shot. But it was quite clear to us that if we were going to do this scalably, we'd need much better tools uh, to do this because we wanted to do this remotely. We wanted to be able to do this without having to go through the whole process that had taken us six to nine months. And really, that's where the notion of Aurora was born. So the concept started as... Aurora Solar being a solar installer initially, but you realized all of the drawbacks to that and you created this tool to make that process better. But then you realized that that internal tool was actually, it had the potential to be a company in and of itself. Uh, yes. The, the, the period for that was uh, after year one, essentially just saying that at this point, building a platform on which everyone else can run their solar projects through all the way from making a quote 
to a proposal to, you know, ultimately going through the site assessment and installing it was something that we wanted to provide. And so we shifted focus, put the installation business on hold. There were still one or two other ones that we ended up doing that uh, are still out there. But the major point was to put that on hold and focus purely on the software. Coming up, Aurora comes into focus, but that solar installation in Kenya was only the first difficulty. First, a quick word about our partners. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. At the top of the show, we heard from Devin Sweezy. I am a uh, global energy markets and policy lead for Google's data center organization. Devin is a former solar developer who saw the dramatic cost decline in renewables firsthand. But getting to zero carbon grids will require much more than cheap solar and wind alone. It's not enough, and we need to fundamentally transform the ecosystem in which we're operating in order to drive the grid to zero faster. That's why Google partnered with Sustainable Energy for All and the United Nations to develop the 24-7 Carbon-Free Energy Compact. The compact brings together a range of corporations, NGOs, and governments to declare their support for ambitious policies to make round-the-clock zero-carbon power available everywhere for everyone. This compact is in some ways reflective of that growing ecosystem and the excitement around this approach and the recognition that we need these sort of next generation approaches to drive the grid to zero faster and that there is an ecosystem developing around it. Devin spent the last decade advocating for policies to support zero carbon power and building solar projects. Now at Google, he's leveraging the company's size and ambitions to change energy markets for the better. I think the thing that fires me up the most is the unique position that Google has to enable other organizations that may not have the same resources or headcount as Google to achieve the same ultimate outcome, which is driving decarbonization of electricity grids faster. If your company or organization wants to sign the compact or join the growing movement for 24-7 carbon-free energy, visit 24-7cfe.com. What It Takes is also brought to you by NextTracker. With trackers and controls based on machine learning technologies, NextTracker builds connected solar power plants that keep getting more intelligent. Solar is quickly becoming the cheapest form of electricity on the planet, and NextTracker's technology helps developers lower their costs and boost energy yields. NextTracker is also committed to increasing diversity within our solar workforce, working with Renewables Forward, Solar Energy International, and the Clean Energy Leadership Institute. NextTracker is educating and training the next generation of clean tech professionals, people from all backgrounds. If you want to learn more about NextTracker jobs, visit nexttracker.com forward slash careers. What was the hardest part about starting the company? There's so many candidates, Emily. (laughs) (laughs) I think that going back to the very hardest part, I think it was making that ultimate decision. You know, after we've gone through, done this initial project, felt the personal fulfillment of making a difference and, you know, uh, improving people's lives, gone through the point of like, well, is this something that we're really sure would be able to do long term? Will it have the impact we have? Revisiting that decision and saying, yes, this is something we want to do, but in this different format, I think that was the hardest part. And I'm not unique in this respect. Most people who start something, the first part they say is, or the most difficult part is actually getting started. That inertia, that force you need to just get over the initial hump of getting into a mindset of, yes, we're doing this. 
that was the hardest part. There were many, many other challenges along the way, and, you know, they continue to be, but I think that that was the hardest part of getting started. You've had a really unique fundraising journey. Tell, tell me about it. Yeah, um, <laughs> unique is a very uh, uh, nice way of putting it. Um, <laughs> I mean, incredibly successful, but but unique, especially for the early stages of the company. Yeah, and, you know, I think you're being very... Uh, magnanimous, um, you know, given that I know that you run a venture firm, uh, an awesome one. But by unique, I think that you mean that we basically didn't or couldn't or whatever you want to call it, uh, raise much money for the first five years of our company life. Um, which which was it? Was it couldn't or didn't? Or, or yeah, didn't, didn't want to or couldn't? Y- you know what? Uh, let's just say that we didn't. <laughs> <laughs> The end result was that we didn't. Um, and so for the first five years of the company's life, um, I, I say we didn't, but we did raise some capital. We we raised under a million dollars in uh, private funding. And uh, the first round was what people would call like a friends and family round. And we did get one fund that invested in us initially. And for a lot of people, that sounds like an extraordinary amount of money. And I understand from a personal perspective, that is. But when you're starting a company and you're building something that's fairly complex and you're doing it in this environment, it's extremely, an extremely small amount. But yeah, that was our fundraiser. Just to reiterate, it was a a million dollars is all you raised for the first five years of Aurora's existence. Yes, that is right. Along the way, we won some grants that that helped. But as far as raising money, it was less than a million dollars. And that carried us for the first five years of the company's history. And, you know, over that point, we grew the company to about 40 to 50 people on that initial amount. So obviously we were making some revenue and reinvesting it in the company. But um, that's unheard of. You know, looking back at it, I almost don't know how we did it. But we did it and we got to a core group of people who really, uh, as they do now, care about um, the industry, cared about what they were doing. All of us were obviously uh, taking less than we could make elsewhere, but we we were building this dream together. And that was almost phase one of the company's life, 40 to 50 people. And then things just started happening. We raised $20 million. That was your Series A? That was our Series A, $20 million. And, you know, after you've gone from a million dollars over five years to $20 million at once, it was almost like, wow, like... You know, I don't think I've ever seen anything that big. That was super exciting. We raised that. The pandemic hit. Um, you know, it was quiet for about a year. And then coming out of that towards the end of it, or at least until the, the most severe economic impacts, we raised $50 million. And then earlier this year, we raised $250 million, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. So... Um, in total, <laughs> I think we've raised about three hundred and twenty-one million. About, that, just about. yeah, three hundred and twenty <laughs> of that only came within the last couple of years. For the vast majority of the company's life, we were on a bootstrapped shoestring budget, and you know, a lot of that uh, uh, still, 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 still is incorporated into at least my DNA. <laughs> The two hundred and fifty million that you recently raised—that was at a two billion dollar valuation. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that is correct. How does it feel leading a company valued at two billion dollars? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I mean, at some point, it's just—it's just a number, right? The major focus, the one thing that 
like I spend a lot of time marveling over is how much the software is being used. You know, earlier this year, we hit a major milestone in the company's history where our five millionth solar project had been designed in Aurora. And for us, that's just kind of like, whoa, that's five million proposals that have gone out there where, you know, someone didn't have to drive to the site and back. That's five million projects where hopefully by using Aurora, the project would be designed better, faster, more accurately. That's X number of solar installations that turning away from fossil fuels or other ways in which we're generating carbon emissions. And, you know, if you think back to the origin of the company, the goal was really, you know, in some way, shape or form, creating a future of solar energy for all. So when we see that volume number ticking up, you know, it really makes us feel like we're stepping towards that. But um, in some ways, I'm bearing the lead. All right. So that is the impact we look at. Five million solar projects. That was earlier this year. But if we look at the last few months, we've been running at way over 300,000 a month, which tells me that, you know, it took us about seven years to get to five million projects. And within one or two years, you know, we're going to exceed, we're going to more than double that number. And that's really exciting. It's just testament to uh, the growth of the industry and us doing our part to help propel that. So that is the thing where I kind of sit back and be like, wow, so what does it feel like? It's a long way from trying to figure out which end of the hammer to use on a rooftop, (laughs) you know, uh, (laughs) that did happen, Um, uh, on a rooftop uh, in Kenya to enabling everyone else to be able to install solar much more efficiently, more uh, successfully. The other number is uh, we have over 200 people in the company. And initially, you know, it was two of us and three of us and obviously four for many years. And uh, a lot of the folks who started back then are still with us, which is also super exciting. But now it's over 200 people. So that's Mm -hmm. those are the numbers that kind of are more like, whoa, rather than uh, the financial stuff, which is good, good to show that there's interest in the industry. But these other numbers are full impact. How has your leadership style changed as the company has grown and evolved? I would like to think that uh, I'm wiser. (laughs) (laughs) I'm definitely a lot calmer than I used to be. I had come from an environment where the, the prevailing joke was that, you know, we're we're in a we're in a market where there's no prey in this market. It's all predators. (laughs) And so everyone felt that it was more than dog eat dog. It was more like, you know, lion eat lion, tiger eat tiger. Like if you wanted to get something done, you had to go. And, and, you know, it wasn't a productive environment, but that was what I'd spent seven years really honing and mastering and everything else. To be clear, I was on the trading slash investing side, as opposed to like, you know, anything related to uh, direct customer service. And so now it's moving. Good distinction. Yeah, good distinction. Yeah, to be clear. Uh, it was fantastic, but like there, there was there was definitely that um, intense pressure. And I was moving to an environment where, especially then and even more so now, people are doing this because they really, really care about the end mission, the goal. They're really passionate about what solar can do for society, they're really concerned about a better future for all of us. So, of course, there's still going to be that 
intensity to do things quickly. Like the problems at hand are urgent, right? Like, you know, climate change, all of these things. You know, we don't have time. We got we to gotta, we gotta get a move on and finding solutions to mitigate this. And the intensity is there. But the way in which you communicate that and you encourage people to pursue that definitely had to change. And uh, that's something that over the course of almost 10 years from when we first started to now, I think is something that I've had to uh, soften up a little bit and find uh, a multitude of ways to really encourage people uh, to drive towards that goal. Whereas in the early days, uh, uh, and again, a lot of the folks are still here, so it wasn't too bad. In the early days, uh, <laughs> it was uh, absolutely like, you know, you know, we're at war. <laughs> let's uh, let's uh, let's get to work. So um, that that's mm. been a change. Looking back on your fundraising journey for entrepreneurs that are earlier in their fundraising process, or maybe they haven't even started, what advice would you have for them? And did it get easier or harder over time? Yeah. Well, the second part to that question is easier. Um, it, it got much easier over time. The very, very first round even before the Series A, was really difficult. And remember, a lot of that was um, friends and family. So at that point, it's really convincing them, hey, this is a real problem in society, and these are the things we need to do to help mitigate that, and we really believe there could be a business that comes out of it. So I remember like personally pitching people who I used to work with and so on and so forth. So ultimately, uh, we convinced a lot of them to chip in. But uh, back then... You know, they're really making a bet on people because they're like, oh, I don't know about this. And remember, 10 years ago, solar was not on most people's minds. Uh, going to a lot of professionals, there were a lot of no's. Um, with our Series A, we were able to find a phenomenal partner in Energize Ventures. But back then, there was no powerhouse. Um, and there were <laughs> a lot of other people. We, we lost out. <laughs> well, uh, both did because um, it was really difficult. But... You know, we were able to find one person to to believe in us, and you know, ultimately, it's worked out uh, phenomenally. The most recent rounds, solar is very much in people's minds. People understand the importance of renewable energy. There's several publicly traded uh, solar companies that are doing well, so people can see an example of you know what the end outcome would be. You know, when it comes to investors, uh, they have um, uh, a lot of things that they want to support, but ultimately they have responsibilities to their stakeholders and, you know, that's to generate a return for them. So they have to take almost like a cold hearted look at the numbers and the numbers have been very good. So the later rounds have been like, it's not even comparable to how difficult those early days were. What was the single hardest day at Aurora? And I know you're very diplomatic and very intentional. I don't want that. I want the one that you're afraid to share. I mean, Emily, it's been like literally thousands of days at this point. So picking the single <laughs> hardest day is tough. Um, I'll share one that was very early in the company's uh, life. And, you know, for anyone who's been in solar long enough, the term the solar coaster <laughs> comes from the idea that solar can really take you to exhilarating heights and exhilarating lows in extreme at extreme speed. And when you're going up to those heights, you don't know when it's going to turn and vice versa when you're going to those lows. These days, it's been, you know, extremely positive right now. So that's good. But I can think of one day and that was when um, what at the time, I think this is probably about seven years ago now, 
at the time, it was uh, probably the biggest um, solar company in the world, and it went bankrupt. And it almost seemed to happen overnight. And for the industry, that was just a huge blow. It's almost like our knight in shining armor, our one example of like, look, solar can be a big industry, <laughs> has just gone bankrupt. This was Sun Edison? Uh, yeah. For Aurora, at the time, that was our biggest customer, right? <laughs> and, you know, this was probably a time when the company had maybe like 10 people. We were joking. I remember there was one time when we had to do a due diligence meeting. And, uh, you know, they brought in, they were evaluating our software because they're like, well, we're going to be committing a lot to this and we want to make sure. And they're like, they want to meet the people behind it. So me and my co-founder walked in. We had a bunch of our engineers and, um, you know, product people, et cetera, et cetera. And we walked into this room and just the number of people they had due diligence was like three times the size of our company. <laughs> just going around and introducing everyone took about half the me meeting. So for us, winning that contract and, you know, getting to work was super exciting. And then to see that just evaporate what seemed overnight, like literally, I think a credit card bounced, was a very, very, very low day for the company. As you know, the industry, our industry is very much overly represented by men and by white men in particular. I'm curious to hear about your experience as a black man leading a solar company in our space. Sometimes this is a question that people don't like, but I, I in particular like it because a large part of the reason why, you know, I'll do this interview in particular and, you know, just a lot of these things that are outside of just purely the product is uh, to inspire uh, people to pursue their dreams and, you know, to make a difference in the ways they can. And um, for me, it's, uh, it's a privilege being uh, a black man able to lead a company uh, in the way I have, um, because very few people get this opportunity. There are a number of reasons for that, historical and otherwise, but very few people have this opportunity. And, you know, I have um, and, um, you know, I definitely want to make the most of it and do it to the best of my ability so that uh, I'm a good example, not only for all the stakeholders and people who believe and, you know, people at Aurora and our customers as well, um, but also people who are outside looking in and all they can see is, you know, on the surface, is this working out or not? Because uh, that is how you help. Uh, that is one of the ways you help um, uh, make things better for the next generation. So. You know, my experience has been one of which, you know, as, as I shared, I feel very fortunate and privileged to be in a position where I can hopefully set an example for folks. But, you know, there are challenges that uh, I believe are unique uh, to people like me, uh, and not only me, other, you know, like women in the industry. You're interviewing me, but I'm sure it wasn't easy starting your uh, fund. Um, uh, anytime when you don't seem to be the norm, there are going to be many challenges along the way. It goes back to, for me personally, the strength of the conviction you have in what you're doing. And, you know, jumping over any sort of hurdles that may come and understanding that they may come, but... You know, once you have that understanding and you have the mentality of I'm going to get to the end no matter what, it makes it a lot more manageable. It makes, it, it makes you aware that something may come up, but it is just going to be a hurdle which you've been training for and you've been practicing for and that you will overcome. And what ends up happening is at some point, those hurdles go from being like 
you know, these insurmountable problems to being, it's just part of a race, right? Like, you know, I love the Olympics. You look at the 110 meter hurdlers uh, on the men's side and the women's have 100 meter hurdles. Um, if you look at that race, they're flying over those things. You know, they take off at full speed and they just go, it's just become something you do. In their minds, they almost don't exist, right? Like, you know, they've disappeared. So from my experience, yes. Have there been issues? Absolutely. Have they been things that ultimately I'm glad that I'm now in a position that hopefully others can see this example? And we're not alone. There are many others, actually, uh, some of whom you've interviewed as well, which is exciting. You know, the more of those examples they are, I think that the more it becomes a more inclusive industry. We need everyone rooting for solar. If everyone isn't rooting for solar, we're going to lose. Uh, the benefits of solar to be shared by all and the consequences of, you know, climate change and things like that are also shared by all. So uh, I'm, I, I consider it a privilege to uh, be in this position and hopefully make things easier for everyone else who, you know, has a dream, has a vision, um, and worries that there aren't many examples of people who have been successful that look like them or anything else. So certainly if, uh, Beautiful. if I was able to do it uh, you definitely can because uh, I was not and am not qualified but you know uh, you know you try your best every day and and here you are no beautifully beautifully put and a perfect transition into our high voltage round these are quick questions quick answers quick meaning a couple words or a short sentence the first of which is Sam if you were going to be an animal what animal would you be and why <laughs> Uh, we're not allowed to use domestic pets, right? Um, oh, you can use whatever you oh, want. Oh, really? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. You know what? I think, I think an elephant, you know. That's mine. Oh, that's yours? Okay, great. Mm-hmm. So no explanation needed. Elephant wise, cool. <laughs> no, no, no. But I want to hear your reason. I like that they're communal animals. I like that they're grand. And, uh, you know, if you've ever seen one like in person, they're just these massive beasts and they just seem so gentle. But if, if... If anything goes down, you don't want to be in their way. So, elephant. I love it. That was similar to my answer. What inspires you? Uh, ultimately, people. Ultimately, uh, the potential in people and unleashing that inspires me. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Definitely another company. What kind of company? I, I don't know, but uh, if I had to start one, I, I can't do anything else at this point. Um it would be something else that, you know, relates to people and, you know, unleashing potential. So, yeah. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? Oh, definitely um, my, my folks. Y- you know, they, they not only gave me the resources like schooling, stuff like that, to be able to do this, but uh, more importantly, planted the seed that, hey, listen, you know, whatever you get, you're going to have to pay back in some way, shape or form. So I almost have this like guilt to a certain extent, a positive guilt of like, hey, you got to do something with whatever resources or opportunities you have. So I would say them. What is the best investment you've ever made? I mean, starting Aurora was uh, a huge um, investment. Actually, also a very big investment was uh, the initial project in uh, Kenya. Um, Because to do that, one, uh, for grad school, I actually ended up getting a second grad degree uh, from the School of Earth Sciences. And that's a huge investment in time and money. Um, uh, But it was worth it because I knew I wanted to commit my career to this. And then also um, had to chip in a bit to make sure the project got off the ground. That that was just a reflection of the conviction 
Uh, so I would say that that's been the best investment that I've made. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? Speaking about how uh, uh, management style has evolved, in the early days, I thought what was true was like the intensity uh, with which you had to approach a startup would mean that, you know, certain um, approaches like, you know, were were necessary. And I no longer think that. I think that you can be empathetic and, you know, um, you know, take a much longer term perspective and understanding of other circum all of these type of things. I think you can just be a really nice person and still win. Uh, mm -hmm. In the early days, I didn't think you could do that. When are you your best self? I think I'm my best self, and I'm not unique in this respect, when I'm inspired by what I'm doing. And, you know, at that point, you know, you can focus, you can, you know, just, it, it doesn't feel like work anymore. Uh, and that could be in any sort of uh, avenue of life when feeling inspired. So I would say that I'm my best self when I'm feeling inspired or when I'm trying to create that inspiration, because sometimes you actually have to create it for yourself. Mm -hmm. What is your worst trait? Um, uh, Probably the flip side of that intensity is working all hours of the night, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, I remember one day when I knew I was overdoing it, when someone at the company joked like, oh, Sam, do you sleep or do you just hit reset at one point in the night? And I was like, okay, that's not good. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? The zero sum mentality we have with respect to many things, whether it's talking about solar, whether it's talking about social justice, you know, there's this zero-sum mentality of that, hey, if we do this, it takes away from that, and that is one thing I would change. If there was just one person who was going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? Uh, if I could pick two, um, uh, pro probably, probably, well, well, probably my dad. He passed away uh, uh, 10 years ago. So that is part mm -hmm. of what inspired uh, the shift to doing something different. So uh, if he could, I got to have my co-founder listen to it too, right? Like he's been here for every step of the way and be before. So th those would be my two nominees. What is your best quality? Probably it would be the ability to gain so much conviction in an idea that it inspires others to to join as well. And that's a combination of um, more than just like flowery language. Um, it's a combination of saying, hey, this is possible, dream big, and then, you know, demonstrating at least a portion of that. So I would say that's probably it. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... Because um, uh, people give up. If you really knew me, you would know. Uh, I, jeez, I, I think you really know me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I know you through the through the interview and and as many years as we've known each other. But but I'm going to press you for an answer. <laughs> if you really know me, you'd know that I prefer operating behind the scenes. I do know that about you. <laughs> success is uh, success is impact. If I could have done one thing differently, I would have... I would have started Aurora or something like it a lot earlier. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have waited for a big catalytic event in life to decide, oh, I want to do something different that is much more meaningful. If the world knew me for one thing, it would be... 
I have to go back, uh, which is impact. Um, I'm not done yet. Um, still a lot of life. So I'll keep that generic and say, uh, you know, having a big impact on society and also creating a team where uh, people felt that uh, we were living out those values as well. I'm most proud of? You know, aside from the impact, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm most proud of um, the, the team that we've put together because in the early days, it was very difficult to uh, convince people that this is something that they should dedicate their life's work to. And now that we're much bigger, still every day inspiring people to treat each other in a certain way, treat our customers in a certain way, and drive towards a certain goal still with intensity is a hard, fine act to balance. Last question to build a successful startup, what it takes is? Many things, but one thing you definitely cannot have is a plan B. Sam, this concludes our episode of What It Takes. I'm really just inspired by what you've built, and I feel really fortunate to know you and to help share your story and success with the world. So thank you. Well, thanks a lot, Emily, for uh, having me. And, uh, you know, this has been great. It's the first, one of the first things like this that I've done. So, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully someone finds something in here useful and interesting. And, you know, thanks, uh, thanks, thanks for having me on this. And most importantly, thanks for all that you do as well. Sam Adeyemo is the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Aurora Solar. Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. One thing you can do to support the show is give us a rating and write a quick review. The team's favorite review from the last month was from Fnitty43 or Fnitty43, who said, Loved hearing the Tesla founding story from a co founder himself. The interview contained genuine perspective and lessons for the startup grind. Thank you so much for your kind words. The team loves reading these reviews. I want to thank Google for their support of the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next generation clean energy with its 24 7 carbon free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Media. Powerhouse is an innovation firm that works with leading global corporations to help them find, partner with, invest in, and acquire the most innovative startups in clean energy, mobility, and climate. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, backs founding teams building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more about Powerhouse and Powerhouse Ventures at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at joinpowerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. Also, we are hiring. Powerhouse is looking for a vice president of strategy and operations, a head of business development, and an innovation analyst. To learn more, go to powerhouse.fund forward slash careers. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Jamie Kaiser, Alexandria Herr, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand mixed the episode and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. Oh, wow. I love that we call it a cold open. I feel like we're on SNL.